Good morning. My name is Emily Madison. Today we will be reading from Matthew 23, 1 through 39, which can be found on pages 828 in your pew Bible. Matthew 23, 1 through 39. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do you observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do? For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God, and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done, without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out of a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, measure the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that, on, 
so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous. Sorry, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon the gener- this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Emily. Uh, Buckle up, everybody. This is going to be a blast this morning. Um, When I looked at this passage, when I found out the date I was preaching this week, I was like, oh, I should have been out of town this week. So, but we'll, we'll work our way through it and we'll, uh, I, th- I, think, I think this passage actually is very helpful to us. So, good morning. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. And uh, today we do continue on in our series through the book of Matthew. And as you just heard, we're, we're kind of in a tense part of this gospel uh, there's some real friction going on in the last few sections. I mean, a couple weeks ago, we saw in Matthew 21, the religious leaders of the day, they started challenging and questioning Jesus, the authority of Jesus, uh, to which he responded with parables that, um, that these parables really exposed their obedience and desire for power and position. And they heard this and they heard these parables and they're like, wait a minute, he's talking about us. And they wanted to arrest him, but couldn't because Jesus was considered a prophet by the people. So you have that tension and conflict going on. Then in chapter 22, he gives a parable about a wedding feast, explaining how the Jewish people, his own people, were going to reject him. Then the religious leaders were going to get, they get together and they start to come up with a plan to pepper Jesus with questions to trip him up. So they ask questions about taxes and resurrection and marriage and other topics in order to expose him and also to avoid their own desires and uh, motives from being exposed. So they're kind of playing a two-part game. They try to expose his uh, motives. Meanwhile, they're trying to protect their motives. And all this is swirling and going on. And we come to Matthew 23, where Jesus is going to warn the people and call out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and call them things like blind fools, which I'm sure goes over great. So that's all going on, and it may feel like a lot to carry. If you're like me, I have a a personality type that does not like conflict. In fact, I'll do just about anything sometimes to avoid conflict. And so when we hear a passage of Scripture like this, we just want to like breeze through it and, and move on. And it can be, feel a lot to carry for some of us. It may even cause us to ask questions of, what do we do with all of this? Why would, why would Jesus, if Jesus is loving, why would he talk like this? What's he trying to accomplish in these moments? But there's also a temptation to read this passage of Scripture as if it were directed at some religious groups in the time of Christ and miss the point that we have the same tendencies today as these religious leaders 2,000 years ago. 
They were really sincere in what they were doing. They believed in it. They believed what they were doing was right and good. But Jesus begins to denounce these late leaders. He had previously done this in Matthew 15 when he privately warned his disciples of the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But now Jesus is starting to go more public with the crowds of people. Because at this time, if you were a religious person, you followed the teaching and practices of these religious leaders without thought or question. You just did it. That's the way it was. It was did it. No questions asked. So what Jesus is doing in these warnings is challenging the disciples and the people, are you going to follow me or are you going to follow leaders who are full of hypocrisy? And in here in Matthew 23, we see Jesus in his love and grace give warnings to the people that ought to cause us today to ask questions of our own heart and souls. We should be asking questions like, are we missing it? Where are we wrong? Have we been thinking about this the wrong way? Are we resistant to God correcting or changing us in particular areas? But see, here's the beautiful thing about a passage of Scripture like this, and there is a beauty to it, believe it or not. Jesus cares enough about us and loves us so much that he points out where we are mistaken and shines light on the blind spots of our hearts and draws attention to it. That's an act of his grace and mercy. Because the reality is that when Jesus comes into contact with our sin and he exposes our blind spots and uncovers our hearts and brokenness and the ways that it plays out, there's going to be tension and conflict. Maybe with him and even in our own souls, but Jesus over and over again has proven himself trustworthy to be present with us, draw our attention to it, and offer healing from our sin. So Jesus tells the crowds of people and his disciples in verse 3 that the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and Pharisees, preach but don't practice. In verse 4, they lay heavy burdens on the shoulders of the people. Not literal burdens, but exasperating rules without helping the people. Verse 5, all the good deeds and works that they were doing were not for the good of the people, but to be seen by others and to be present at religious feasts and services that they love to sit in places of honor and they love their title of rabbi. And again, as we read this text, it could be really easy for us to point the finger at these religious leaders and say, wow, these guys were a real mess. And they were. But if we're not careful, we could totally miss the ways that in the crevices and secret places of our own hearts, we too can live our lives the way they did. See, we can obey the commands of Christ. We can keep all the rules and make ourselves feel safe or in control because we think if we live just right, then God will be happy with us. But then also on the flip side, we can push back so hard on legalism and authority that we make an idol out of our own spiritual freedom and individualism because we're really complicated people. In our sinful nature, we take good, right things, truths about God, practices that are intended to build up our faith and benefit people around us, and 
what we often do is we turn them upside down and we manipulate them to where we can receive a false sense of security or control, affirmation, or even feel like we're good at something. But Jesus, it may not sound like it, but Jesus is. And in doing so, he gives his followers then and us today questions that come from the themes of this passage that we need to consider, ponder, and pray through so that we can be honest about the ways we miss it, we can repent of our sin and be healed and be made whole. So the first question that comes from this passage that we have to consider and ask ask Jesus to poke around the true answer comes from verse 3, where he says that the religious leaders preach but do not practice. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, do we miss practicing what we preach? Jesus says that these religious leaders sit on Moses' seat, which means they had the authority to teach the law. Because of this, the, of this authority, the expectation was that the people were to observe and practice what was taught. But what Jesus is saying is that they weren't supposed to do everything the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. Because look at verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across, across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make twice as much of a child of hell as yourselves. Woo! What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the, pe- that the people should obey these le- leaders as long as they teach the word of God rightly, but their actions are not to be followed because they preached but didn't practice. They piled heavy burdens onto others but weren't, wi- weren't willing to carry any of those burdens themselves. This is why Jesus calls them hypocrites throughout this chapter. But again, in our human na- nature, we are often like these leaders. Because so often we can preach or say certain truths, but do the complete opposite. We can have the most sound theology and doctrine, but lack real, tangible compassion and love for people. We can teach with great knowledge and authority, but fail to live up to it. So is there consistency between what we say and how we live? Is there consistency between what we say and how we live as parents? In your marriage, in our professions, in our friendships, in your school, and the private places where no one when, where no one else is. The second question we should ask ourselves is: the is the approval of God and who's enough, and whose approval are we longing for? Jesus touched on this idea in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount when he talked about those who give, pray, and fast so they could be seen by other people. The same accusation is now pointed at the religious leaders when Jesus, in verses 5 through 7, says that they would take phylacteries or small boxes inscribed with God's law and they would strap them to their arms and foreheads, and then they, they love the places of honor at feasts and, and the best seats in the synagogues and throwing around their title of rabbi to be seen by people. And we have the same tendency as, this, as these religious leaders to seek out places and positions of honor and significance sometimes because there's often unmet needs in, of our own souls. We may do good things and participate in healthy practices 
not for the good of others or our own spiritual health, but to be seen and recognized by people or gain their approval and then become less and less content with the approval of God, with the approval of God and who we are in Him. See, when we crave recognition and, and approval for, uh, from other people, what it does is it numbs our hearts and our souls for the true approval that can only satisfy that comes from a relationship with Christ. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would cultivate desires and longings for approval to be found in ways that only God can provide. And then a third question that comes from this passage that we have to ask ourselves is, do we assume superiority over others? In verses 6 and 7, Jesus says that the religious leaders love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And they love the greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. And at first, this could sound like Jesus is speaking against teaching in the church. But we know that that is not the point, especially since elders are throughout the New Testament are called to teach and to lead the church. But what Jesus is saying is a rebuke to those who have used their leadership position to assume some sort of superiority over others. And when we take some time to evaluate our lives, we have this same desire to be considered superior over others. And this plays itself out every single day. Because we have God-given needs that are part of being human, but we try to meet those needs in, the un- in unhealthy ways. And, and one of those ways is assuming we are superior to other people. And it can be so subtle and so sneaky that we don't even realize, realize it, or we may even deny that we have pride in our hearts. A uh, familiar author, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, calls pride the great sin and says, If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Pride is essentially competitive, is competitive by its very nature. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If, if ever no one else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be, to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest, He then goes on to say, if anyone would like to acquire humility, the first step is to realize that one is proud. See, we are naturally prone to compete with one another, to measure ourselves with other people, and to do so, so, we trick ourselves into feeling safe. Or we convince ourselves that we're in control. Or we carry a feeling of competency or significance when those are needs that can only be met by a relationship with God. The question of do we assume superiority over others leads right into the question that comes from verses 11 through 12. Are we self-absorbed? Jesus says here in verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. In this gospel, Matthew mentions numerous times in the teaching of Jesus the need for humility. One of the themes we've seen throughout 
uh, Matthew is the upside down nature of the kingdom of God and that humility is counted as strength. And in Matthew, Jesus contradicts cultural leadership assumptions. He says in verse 12 that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. This idea of humility is closely tied to the ways we serve other people. Do we live a life of looking for ways and chances to serve others, or are we self-absorbed and say, I'll serve, but what is best for me in this situation? When we see the life of Christ, we see a life of humble service that ultimately the humility of Christ led to the payment of our salvation. And when we overlay his story with our story, what do we see? When we look at the life of Christ, at the humility and sacrifice that he provided for each one of us, and we look at our own lives, what do we see? Do we see a pattern of service or a pattern of self-preservation, false motives, or grasping at recognition? Jesus keeps going on in these seven woes. Look at verse 16 with me. He says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for, what is, which, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has, been, that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone, if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by, who, by him who sits upon it. That's a lot of fun. Now, this passage can kind of make our heads swim a little bit, but Jesus, what he's talking about here is the oaths that people would take as they would, as they would worship. I mean, you've got some people making oaths by the temple and then some swearing by the gold of the temple. Some people were swearing by the altar. Others were swearing by the sacrifice that was on the altar. I mean, isn't this fun? I mean, these people had to have been a ton of fun to hang out with. So the question that helps us see this same tendency in us is, are we focused on religious activity rather than faithful obedience? Because again, in verse 16 and 22, Jesus is talking about these oaths that the people would make by the place of worship, the gold of the sanctuary, the altar. He's talking about the rules that have been made, to, made up to allow people to swear by certain things and then to be bound by those things. Certain oaths had to be kept based on another set of circumstances, and they missed the point. They missed the point of what the altar and the sanctuary was all about. It was all about worship. And then in the next woe and warning in verse 23, Jesus goes along with that. He says, you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. What Jesus is really doing here in Matthew 23 is he is crying out to the people and he's saying, you're missing it. You're missing it by all of this religious activity. 
And with the, all of this re- religious active activity, you're actually trying to manage, manage God and you're missing the point. And to be honest, we have the same tendency to do this too. We can get caught up in all kinds of religious activity, but miss what it's all about. We get focused so much on doing our religious routines that we miss what they're about. Cultivating a greater awe of God, a desire and love for Him that will lead to faithful, uh, faithful obedience. We, we practice the practices for the sake of the practice. Or we follow Christ where it's convenient, but then when it costs us something, we back out. So many times we jump into mental and spiritual gymnastics and we miss ways we can serve or because of the minutia that we have a tendency to dive into that we ignore ways that people are being hurt and even abused by our religious systems. There's a, there's a fifth question that we need to engage with in the presence of Christ so he can heal us from, us, from it. It comes from verse 25. Look there with me again. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, as the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, do we aim for external obedience instead of internal transformation? Throughout the Gospels, we see the scribes and Pharisees have this this habit of observing the law and, and, and practices on the outside while neglecting humility and holiness on the inside. Jesus said, you don't just don't clean the outside of a cup, you clean the inside first, and then the outside will be clean. Jesus said they were like whitewashed tombs that on the outside appeared beautiful, but on the inside were full of dead bones. This serves as a reminder to us today that religion can be a cover for spiritual deadness. It's possible for us to attend church, be involved in small groups and community. We can read and study the Bible, serve and just go through the motions for years and decades, all the while never experiencing spiritual transformation that comes from a relationship with Christ. At times we can do all of these religious practices, things that we should do, but forget that the practices are in service of being in relationship with Christ, not checking a box or receiving some kind of religious satisfaction. If all we're trying to do by being religious is trying to change our moral behavior, We're only painting over the curse of sin that is at the root of our actions and the way we think and the way we feel. And at some point, that root of sin will spring up and play itself out in some pretty pretty destructive ways. And sometimes in ways that might even be socially acceptable. 
So what we need is Jesus to enter into the picture and to be with him and allow him to change us from the inside. And that process can be really slow and painful. And the good news is that Jesus isn't thrown off by our inner messiness. He doesn't abandon us because of our messiness, but he says, I love you enough to work through this with you and to heal you. Jesus gives a final uh, woe and warning in this passage. He says in verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Monuments were often built to Israel's, Israel's prophets, basically uh, to remember what had happened, but also to imply that they would never do what the previous generations did to these prophets by persecuting and killing them. So I think the question for us today is, are we allowing spiritual pride to numb our own sin? And it's just so typical of our human nature to carry this idea of, I would never do something like that. Or my sin is not as bad as someone else's. Or think that we think we are more spiritual because we may not partake in certain things that other people might. And what this does is it creates a mindset of spiritual pride that numbs us to our sin and we get more and more desensitized to it. So what we need to do is we need to ask Jesus to do a work in our hearts to point us out to how we carry pride in our hearts. Where are the spots of pride in our souls and minds so we don't run into blind spots that become very destructive down the line? You know, Jesus gives these seven woes or condemnations to these religious leaders. And, and like I said, it would be easy for us to point the finger at these guys and, and these guys who lived 2,000 years ago and, and or even people we know today that may live in a hypocritical way. But as we sit with this passage for a moment and we engage with these questions that gets to the heart of why we do what we do, the question is, uh, the, the conclusion as we see the Pharisees and the religious leaders is that all of us, we are them. And because we are them, we need Jesus. We need Jesus to enter our heart, souls, and minds and work a miracle and change us. We need to be in relationship with Jesus, and as he said in John 15, abide in him. And that relationship with Christ changes everything. He heals us, and he, answer, he heals us from the answers to these questions. He meets the needs that we att attempt to fulfill by our hypocrisy. Jesus is the one who perfectly practiced what he taught. He provides us with approval that can only come from God. Jesus didn't assume a superiority, but humbled himself and died for us. Jesus provides the mercy and strength to be faithfully obedient. And in his love, he exposes our spiritual pride that numbs us to our sin. And Jesus does all of this, but he also provides us with hope. So look at verse 37. So even in the middle of these warnings and woes and this pretty intense 
conversation that Jesus was having with these people, Jesus offers hope because look at 37, verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her broad under her wings and you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus warns of coming judgment and the wrath of God by saying in verse 38 that their house, the temple, their place of worship would be left desolate. That Jesus is saying that hypocrisy and religious control and spiritual pride would not go left unpunished. But what Jesus is doing, there's also a pleading going on. He calls for the people. He calls for us. And in his love, he pursues us. Even in our sin, he calls out and he provides mercy from the wrath of God like a mother hen provides shelter under her wings for her babies. And with the backdrop of the just, righteous judgment of God, we are reminded of the good news of the work of Christ. That he provides safety for his people. He provides a remedy from spiritual pride and hypocrisy in our hearts. Which is why we take communion every week. To remind us that we need Jesus. That only true change, only true healing from hypocrisy comes from him. Only true change is provided through his death, burial, and resurrection. Would you pray with me? Jesus, forgive us. Forgive us for taking the good things that you have created and for manipulating them and turning them on, our, on their heads for our own benefit and good. I pray you'd be present with us as we consider this passage. I pray you'd be present with us. Point out the, the, the dark areas of our, our hearts and our souls and our minds where we, we live in ways that are hypocritical. Thank you that you are present with us and then we ask for healing, that you would change us and make us more like you. And in your name we pray. Amen. When you're ready. You can come and take communion.